From Brighton on the English South Coast, these are the voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums with Dr Sophie Frost. Hello, I'm Sophie and I've spent the past nine months wandering the corridors of the Royal Pavilion and Museums in Brighton and Hove, otherwise known as RPM, uncovering the stories of the museum people who keep Brighton's historic buildings and collections relevant, vibrant and accessible for the world we're living in. In this week's episode, I speak to Jodie East, the creative programme curator at the Royal Pavilion and Museums, who will be describing how the Royal Pavilion was used as a hospital for Indian soldiers during the First World War and how the creative programme at RPM has commemorated the impact of the First World War amongst its communities on the south coast. I'm Jodie, Jodie East, and I'm the creative programme curator at the Royal Pavilion and Museums. Um, so I'm part of a small team that manage the delivery of temporary exhibitions and small displays and public events, usually at Brighton Museum and also the Royal Pavilion. I've been with RPM since 2005, so 14 years, so almost, well, all my museum career and almost all of my grown-up life. <laughs> um, and one of the things I love most about that particular role is because it's temporary exhibitions, everything only lasts for a short period of time. So you get to work with so many different people, experts, different members of the community, um, and it's, you just learn a lot. So I don't come from any particular specialist background. I just get involved in lots of different things, really. That sounds really fun. But it's really fun. <laughs> it is fun. It's, um, it's genuinely fun. Um, it has its moments, of course, um, and a lot of it is a lot of admin you know you're arranging transport and mm. condition reports and insurance um, all things like that but I see my role as we work with people who know a lot about a particular subject to kind of get what's in their heads into the gallery in a way that makes it really accessible to a much wider audience mm-hmm. um, so we want our exhibitions to be really reachable and um, to engage people on lots of different levels. It sounds like almost a translation role, in a way. It's a kind of interpretation role. In- interpretation, yeah, that's yeah. more museum way of putting it, sorry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I haven't interviewed anyone from your team yet. What are the kind of the main facets of it, the, the spirit, I guess, I'm, I'm wondering about? On an official level, we have different strategies for programming exhibitions. One, one is that... Some of our exhibitions have to be what we call blockbuster exhibitions. They have to get people in through the doors. You know, we want people to pay to come in and see them. So they have to be something that's going to attract a big crowd. Um, For example, the Bieber exhibition Mm -hmm. we did a few years ago, um, Wildlife Photographer of the Year that we take on tour from the Natural History Museum. They're kind of exhibitions that we know people will come to. Mm-hmm. Um, the Constable exhibition that we did a few years ago as well, things like that. But then on another level, and I think this is probably where me and my uh, colleagues get the most out of our roles, is programming exhibitions that engage people on a really personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, things that you know encourage people to reminisce or to feel that they're connecting with something um to a story or to an object or to a place in their life exhibitions that reflect that are things that for me really i find really exciting and lots of our exhibitions are programmed with that in mind 
the story of the Royal Pavilion being used as a hospital for Indian soldiers during the First World War is a really important story in RPM's history. So would you be able to, Jodie, to outline it? This is a project that is very close to my heart. Um, I came across this story when I was a student at the University of Sussex doing my MA in history and I had obviously been going past the pavilion almost every day of my life in Brighton as an undergrad um, and I'd never heard the story of Indian soldiers in hospitalised in the Royal Pavilion during the First World War, never come across it and it was only doing a project at the university that I, I discovered it and I just I was just I found it fascinating um, that this this Regency palace had somehow been turned into a hospital for very specifically Indian soldiers during the First World War and for a really short period of time um, it was between December 1914 and January 1916 at the absolute latest so it was less it was just over a year I found it fascinating when I first discovered it Um, and then when I was lucky enough to start working at RPM there wasn't anything about this story in the Royal Pavilion there you, you came as a visitor and you took the audio tour or you wandered around the building but there was nothing that touched on this story in any detail at all so in 2010 we allocated some money um, to open a small permanent gallery in the Royal Pavilion based around this story this was the first time there was any interpretation in the pavilion about this um, mm. and it was all done quite quickly um, Kevin who was a curator of photography at the time and David Beavers the keeper of the pavilion both spent a short amount of time researching working at the British Library um, trying to kind of piece together more of the story um, to be able to put together a display and I helped kind of manage the project and get it open an exhibition is often the end point of years of research or years of working on something it's the culmination of something and I think maybe people thought the same for this and that once the gallery was open that was it it was up people would come and see it maybe hopefully learn a bit about this part of the pavilion's history Um, but actually it ended up being the beginning of quite a long that's ongoing um, kind of project's the right word it's kind of an ongoing thing it's an ongoing part of the Royal Pavilion's history I think yeah um so the gallery opened in 2010 we didn't do as much collaborative work for the gallery as we could have done as we would probably have liked to have done as we would do now um it was very much based on research that we did at the British Library um talking in a small amount to local experts such as Davinda Dillon and Tom Donovan who are part of the Chattery Memorial Group but it gave us the opportunity to start these relationships which hadn't really existed before and then in 2014 I applied for a travel grant from the British Council um, to go to India and spend a week there making connections with people and seeing if we could develop the project further, which was absolute highlight of my career so far. That's amazing. Yeah. So where, well, okay, I want to hear all about it. <laughs> well, I, I didn't really know where to start. Um, we didn't have any connections with any organisations in India. We didn't know if anyone in India was even vaguely interested in the Royal Pavilion's role as an Indian hospital. Um, We were starting from scratch, but we were approaching 2014, which was the centenary anniversary of the start of the First World War. Um, So we were looking at stories and things we could do to commemorate the anniversary. 
Um, so I literally started from scratch. I looked on the Imperial War Museum's Centenary Partnership website where they listed organisations that were doing something to do with the 2014 centenary. An organisation popped up called the Centre for Historical Research and it was based in Delhi and um, they were part of the Indian military and they were also doing research into India in the First World War. Um, so I got in touch with them and they were amazing. Um, a chap called Rana China, previously a squadron leader in the Indian Air Force in a previous life and now is an incredibly amazing historian and talks all over the world about India and its role in, in the world basically. Um, um, so he was doing lots of research and he invited me to come and spend time with him and his son in Delhi and he organised for me to give a couple of talks, one in Delhi and one in Chandigarh, um, about the pavilion and its role as an Indian hospital. So I went out there and did that, which was amazing. One of the really interesting things about this story is the complete lack of unofficial evidence. So there is an incredible amount of official documentation from the uh, British army side, you mm -hmm. know, how they transformed the pavilion, records of how they covered up the carpets with flooring, they boarded up the um, the painted walls in the pavilion to protect them, the rooms were turned into certain wards and how they did it, the great kitchen became a um, operating theatre. Um, wow. There's quite a lot of it and there was a lot of photographic documentation of this. They employed official photographers to take very staged photographs of the pavilion so there's lots of there's lots that you can look at but the only sort of information we have about the patients themselves are based on letters that patients sent back to their families in India mm. but which went through a, a huge censorship process um, so they were checked by the British um, as they left and if it appeared that they were talking negatively about how they were treated or being part of the, the army um, or the war itself, they weren't sent. But, however, I mean, in a way, it was kind of a great... It's a great record because these letters were kept and they are available at the British Library. Extracts were turned into a book a few years ago. Um, so it, there is this resource of being mm -hmm. able to read some of the thoughts of the soldiers. Um, but they're all very processed, I guess. And also a lot of the Indian soldiers were probably not able to read or write themselves, so they were transcribing their letters to official scribes. So you, you don't know what the level of translation actually was. Um, it's our kind of long-term dream to be able to find more about the soldiers themselves. You know, we have numbers of how many were there. I mean, I think it was 12,000 soldiers in Brighton hospitals over the year um, and less than 4,000 in Brighton Pavilion and the Dome Corn Exchange as that particular hospital. All Indian soldiers? All Indian soldiers. So the 4,000 are all Indian soldiers yeah. but 12,000 overall? No, twelve and 12,000 Indian soldiers. So there were three hospitals in Brighton. Sorry. Okay. Um, the Royal Pavilion and the Dome Corn Exchange were one, the Royal Pavilion Estate Hospital, um, the Kitchener Hospital, which was, it was a workhouse, and it's now Brighton General Hospital, which is at the top of Elm Grove, and then um, a school elsewhere in Brighton was also turned into a hospital. So these three places became hospitals for specifically for Indian soldiers during the first year of the First World War. Um, 
I think when the war kicked off, people didn't realise how much need for hospitals there would be. So the Western Front, hospitals in France became completely overwhelmed very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were having to send patients back to the UK. So lots of places along the south coast, buildings were turned into hospitals very, very quickly. Um, The Royal Pavilion is a really interesting one because... I mean, it's a it's a royal palace. It's it had been a civic building for the last fifty years. So in 1850, Brighton Corporation bought the Royal Pavilion from um, Queen Victoria, and she stripped it bare. She took all of the furnishings, everything back to, with her to London to her other houses. And so it had almost been used as a extremely fancy village hall, <laughs> stroke town hall <laughs> for fifty years. <laughs> uh, you know, it was it flower markets, beauty pageants, things like that. So in a way, it was kind of an obvious building to turn mm-hmm. into a hospital. It was mm-hmm. basically empty. Why Indian soldiers specifically? The Indian Army were one of the first forces to sign up to support. The uh, to support Britain in the First World War, they sent thousands of soldiers across to the Western Front very, very quickly. So by December 1914, they were arriving in France and ready to fight. Um, there was there was a massive need for Indian soldiers to be hospitalised because they were fighting alongside the British troops. I mean, Kevin could probably describe this really well if you can get talking about it. But the um, the British were very conscious of how they were perceived to treat the Indian soldiers. Right. Um, they trod a very fine line between keeping a kind of power structure over them whilst also treating them very well because they wanted reports to go back home that they were being treated in a particular mm. way. And this is actually reflected in the letters that you can read in the British Library, but the Indian soldiers were quite complimentary in their comments about the Royal Pavilion Hospital. There were nine different kitchens set up to cater for different religions. Um, There were different areas of worship set up for the different religions. Mm. Um, Signs were printed in um, Urdu, Gamuki um, and Hindi um, Mm. and put up around the building. The burial for the soldiers that did die in Brighton, of which there weren't that many, Muslim soldiers were buried in a mosque cemetery. Um, the Sikhs and Hindus were cremated at a special site set up on the South Downs, which is now the Chattery Memorial Site. The British army and government were very conscious of how they want, how they were perceived by mm. um, by those back in India. I guess they were very proud of India as as part of their empire and there had been rumblings of unrest already back in India as to whether they should be part of the empire whether they should be fighting for their own independence so this was an opportunity for the British government to say you are part of yeah our great empire we will look after you I mean it's yeah so yeah so it was it was huge it was kind of a hugely political treatment it was a massive political statement yes they they mm. they sent the um king and queen down to visit which was mm. i mean most of the soldiers that were sent over came from very poor very rural areas of the punjab mm. so to meet the king of england was seen as a big deal 
Yeah. What an amazing story. And why was it only for a year? Just over a year? Um, because they actually deployed the Indian troops elsewhere. So they weren't on the Western Front for much longer. They actually right. sent them to sort of the Middle East and to um, Africa and places instead. Hove Museum, you may know this already, Jodie, was a prisoner of war camp in the First World War, the building was. There's not much about it. There's a, there's a tiny bit of interpretation around it of someone remembering... I think there's an audio piece in the museum where an old guy is remembering his father was a chef in the prisoner of war camp. Oh, wow. And he goes there and he gets, like, hugged by all the German soldiers or something. And I just think it's so interesting. Like you said, it's a kind of a coastal thing. It's like the first port of call. So we need to put all our prisoners somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> all our patients somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really hard to imagine it now because it just wouldn't happen like that now. I mean, it was unusual at the time. Um, there were newspaper reports of people lining the streets of Brighton as the Indian soldiers arrived on the trains. Um, so they'd bring them down from the train station to the Royal Pavilion Hospital and people would line the streets to see them. I mean, it was quite a spectacle, apparently. I mean, it got to the stage where the British government actually erected a giant fence around the pavilion grounds. There are contrary reports as to whether this was to try and keep the Indian soldiers in or Mm. to actually keep the Brighton people out. Mm. Um, One of the British government's fears was that Christian missionaries would try and come in and convert the Indian soldiers to Christianity. Um, And this... They didn't want these reports to be getting back to India. So we don't know why the fence was there. But there were reports of people kind of peering over the top and trying to look in and and things like that. There's a lot of kind of post-colonial complexity in this story as well. So much. The fact that they were other and they were treated as other, but they were they were given very nice treatment as others. Yes. So it's, all, it's quite it's, complicated. It's very complicated. It's a kind of white patriarchy going on there. It's a very kind of... You know, we will look after you and treat you well, but you are still under our rule. Um, Yeah. And we want to keep it that way. It's so complex. Yeah. Mm. Not that long ago, really. Yeah, yeah. So so you said it's kind of an ongoing project. Yeah. Where's it at now? Well... So I make, I, I make contacts in Delhi with um, this organisation and when we were out there we talked about doing a joint conference together in Brighton. So in 2015 I organised a conference called Voices of India and we really wanted it to be... How do we... We wanted it to be about what people were doing to find... to discover the stories rather than a kind of historical conference. We wanted it to be about how the story is interpreted in literature, how it's interpreted in what grassroots organisations are doing. So it was it was great. It was a really interesting day. Um, we also connected with an organisation based in London called the UK Punjab Heritage Association, And they're an incredibly active Sikh organisation who put on an exhibition in London called The Empire of War and about the kind of Sikh role in the First World War. And they've dedicated a lot of their free time to to researching personal stories of families and people um, who fought in the First World War from the Punjab area. Um, Mm. And they came up with a great idea in 2014 to get two of their volunteers to run Brighton Marathon dressed as First World War Sikh soldiers. Um, So I worked (laughs) with them to get them some places to do this and it was 
brilliant it was they they came down and did some photo shoots in front of the pavilion dressed in their in their kit and then yeah and then we sort of followed them on the day and it was it was it it was incredible I mean you almost got a sense of what it would have been like for the soldiers back in 1914 because people couldn't take their eyes off them they were people kept coming up and saying expressing their kind of wow at the fact that they were one running and two dressed as Sikh soldiers um they were attracting a lot of attention and you kind of felt that must have been what it was like for the soldiers in 1914 when they were on the streets of Brighton back then it was really interesting I guess the difference now in 2014 was that one of the main reasons was they wanted to raise awareness of the Indian soldiers role in the first world war I mean it was huge they sent you know there were millions of people involved Mm -hmm. from India in the first world war and it hadn't been it was a story that hadn't really been acknowledged no. I mean you're not taught about it in schools you're not taught about it in it's not really been present in museum stories mm. um it certainly wasn't really present in government rhetoric about the first world war so it, I mean it is changing it has been changing over the last four years there's been a lot more research and things done about it but it's only it's only the last few years so part of organisations like the UK Punjab Heritage Association, what they are doing is trying to, and within their own communities as well, because mm. they work with lots of diaspora communities in London and Birmingham and places that don't know that their ancestors, you know, that literally two generations away, their ancestors were fighting for Britain in the First World War and have as much part of this history of the First World War as British soldiers do yeah. a part of their role is to try and raise awareness within their own communities as well um, so there's been lots of lots more visits from different sort of um, uh, schools and temple groups and community groups um, to the pavilion over the last few years which is which is brilliant and I guess this is one of the things about my job that I love is is getting to work with people and help them discover part of their own history yeah one site that has been the stage for so many different types of histories and stories it's a quite an organic story that Mm -hmm. it's been great it's grown and each new connection that we've made has led to another connection which has meant another event or another I mean being involved with the with the guys running the Brighton Marathon I mean that's not a traditional museum (laughs) thing to do but for me it kind of is it's bringing history to life it's you know seeing hundreds of thousands of people watching Brighton Marathon seeing these two guys in their first world war uniform for me that is that's that's history in action that's what I I love it I love that that's part of what I get to do (laughs) really inspiring to hear you talk about it and kind of uh, those kind of stories coming out as then ongoing yeah like you're just adding to the layers yeah I mean I I don't know what's coming next with it there aren't any current plans for anything else at the moment but it's always going to be part of the pavilion's history therefore it's always going to be something that we as an organization are interested in exploring Mm. yeah I don't know what what the next stage is with it but that's quite exciting why do you think it was that time in 2010 that it got revisited like was there something about the climate generally that meant that was there like a a mind shift I don't know I Mm. think David who's the keeper of the Royal Pavilion had had it on his mind for a long time that it should be something that we need to explore Davinda 
from the Chachi Memorial Group is amazing and has always been you know this is part of the pavilion's history it should be mm. you should reference it somewhere and I think it's always been in David's mind as something it should be in there um it just hadn't got to the point where weirdly I think by 2014 it's something that would have we would have absolutely have realized we should be doing so I 2010 is almost quite random mm. um it was before we'd even started thinking about the centenary anniversary it just evolved it's just something that we're aware hadn't been explored and need, needed to be and mm. it is generally one of i mean i've taken visitors around the pavilion and people were blown away by that story it's mm. so unexpected it stops people in their tracks i yeah. mean i it really does you and you look at the photos and it you can see that it is the pavilion it's very obviously the pavilion yet there are rows and rows of hospital beds and soldiers in a kind of hospital uniform and yeah it's bizarre (laughs) one of the other things you've worked heavily on is another aspect of the world war one story yeah and its relationship with brighton oh this was an exhibition that we did in 2014 called war stories voices from the first world war and this was an exhibition planned specifically to commemorate the 100 years of the start of the first world war and it's the first project that i curated myself as well as kind of project managed so you take a a much more in-depth kind of what's the word I guess you're immersed in it mm-hmm. a lot more. And we literally started it from scratch. We had no idea where it might go or what it might look like. We just knew that we wanted to do something to commemorate this anniversary. Um, so we, we started off by putting a call out on local radio and the Argus, asking people to come to two drop-in days to share their family histories and any family ephemera or objects they might have, bring them along and talk to us almost like a sort of antiques roadshow kind of (laughs) kind of thing um related to the first world war and so we probably met about 30 people over these two days and the challenge was it being an exhibition instead of a book you could have made a book such a different book um whereas an exhibition it's object focused so you have to have objects to reflect the stories that you're talking about and objects from the first world war are more of a challenge than you think they would be there are so many things from the Second World War that people still have in their family collections. The First World War, not so much. That was our biggest challenge. Was We heard some amazing personal stories, but there wasn't anything to illustrate them. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a curatorial point of view, that was the first challenge. We knew we wanted to do about 12 or 13 individual stories. Um, and we wanted them to represent a kind of really wide view of different experiences of the war it wasn't going to be just focusing on soldiers on the western front Mm -hmm. we wanted stories of families back home we wanted stories from soldiers who were based out in Gallipoli or Indian soldiers who would come to Brighton in the hospital things like that so it was such a moving experience and I can say that every single story that was in the exhibition came out of conversations we had with local people which was amazing and so the objects themselves, mm. how did that... So how did you manage to kind of get the critical mass you needed? Um, well, actually, we, we ended up... I mean, it took a, it took a while. It took, it took a bit of proactive kind of going out and talking to people as well as asking people to come to us. And we were really not prescriptive about what, what we wanted it to be. So the first story, for example, was a lady called Eileen Daffin. 
and her daughter had actually donated some of her collection to the museum already but we hadn't really made the connection between it being oh this this could be part of the first world war exhibition so eileen was born in august 1914 so she was born as the first world war started and then later in life she became the president of the sussex alliance for peace um so her daughter had donated her christening gown and also had photos of Eileen as a child who, you know, her formative years were whilst Britain was at war. So that was our story to start the exhibition off. Right. Um, And then we had another story of a lady who had been a Belgian refugee um, who had come to England from Belgium, from Ypres, actually, and had a child while she was here. And then the family went back to Belgium after the war so there's the story of kind of refugees coming to Brighton 100 mm. years ago which obviously there's quite a lot of contemporary relevance to that now and we had a story of a young Sussex cricketer who was sent to Gallipoli um, and he kept an incredible diary of his experiences out there wow. um, and we what else did we explore we explored there was a family in Brighton who had sent five of their sons to the first world war um there was a there was a couple who they got engaged just before the war started and then got married when they got back so we had her wedding dress from like 1918 in the show so it it wasn't necessarily what you would expect from yeah. a historical exhibition it was absolutely about the people and their mm. lives and sounds hugely relatable to the present yeah yeah i think it was successful on on so many levels i think because it was so nostalgic each story was things that people could personally relate their families to mm-hmm. um and also because so many of the um stories have such contemporary relevance it's really interesting we had we created a metal tree at the very end of the exhibition where we asked people to tie luggage labels onto their tree with a comment a thought about the first world war or about the exhibition or about a family member and lots of people wrote about someone that they had lost in the war but not just the first world war actually people that they'd lost in contemporary conflicts there were lots of comments about um israel and palestine because that was obviously very much in the news Mm -hmm. in 2014 2015 Mm -hmm. um which is less so now so it's almost the the comment cards from this tree are kind of a time capsule of of 2014 and 15 as well and what was in the forefront of people's minds now and i think it would be different if we did it now and asked people to to write that they've been preserved for those yes comments. yes we've mm. kept those yeah we we sort of divided them into different subjects or sections mm. and and they're part of the exhibition archive what made it like a really great exhibition to curate for you it was the personal connections mm. for me. It was the fact that every story came from a real person, a real, mm. a real family, and a real. There was there was one lady who'd found a collection of things in her aunt's attic, and I don't know. It's just it's really it's kind of it's really powerful stuff. Yeah. It's just the emotional connection. I think it's the fact yeah. that everyone who engaged with it, mm. it touched them in some way. Um, yeah. This is a quite a relatively different way of curating, yeah. which is really much more grounded in like the self yeah. and yeah. people. It's yeah, really... it came from our audience. It was very much great. It grew completely mm. out of people that we spoke to. Um, mm. And another thing we did is we didn't really do traditional text panels, as it were. We used the people in the story's voice 
as much as we possibly could. So, for example, Eileen Daffin, the, the lady who was born in 1914, the panel used quotes from her diary and from her book. Um, so wherever possible, it was the voice of the person whose objects were there mm-hmm. that was talking about their life and their experience rather than a curator saying, and this person lived here and did this. It was told with their own words or their family's words in every way we could. Um, we didn't want it to be our voice or the museum's voice yeah. on it. And I think that's another reason people related to it so much because it was very much coming from the person they were seeing. If in a hundred years' time, mm. the person in your role, unless you live forever and it's, <laughs> yeah, it's still you... If I'm still there in a hundred years and something's <laughs> gone wrong. <laughs> ...said, right, I want to curate an exhibition, let's just say, I hate to say it, but about attitudes toward Brexit in the yeah. community yeah. in Brighton and Hove... Yeah in 2019, 2018, or since the referendum. Because you've mentioned diaries a lot, mm. and also memorabilia, but we won't have those things necessarily. And I wonder, how would you capture personal opinions and relationships and stuff? What's going to happen? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I why. Know, I, know. I expect you to have the answer. <laughs> What's the answer? So much is digital these days, isn't it? Yeah. So much is on people. People can, you know, rather than writing something in a diary or a letter, people communicate via social media so I, I, I don't know how that stuff is being preserved or how we can reference it and what the experience of an exhibition would be like mm. if you didn't have any objects whatsoever yeah yeah I like to explore these things I'd be very interested in a I'm very much people focused probably more than it's for me the power of an object comes from the story of it rather than the object itself which might be different from many of my colleagues I don't know (laughs) Um, but it is about Mm. what the object represents you know what it means to people Mm. as much as what it's made out of what it looks like kind of thing yeah I think museums are changing to become much more about the people that they serve in a way Mm. I mean I mean for example Helen's and Sarah's Fashioning Africa project, so much of that was led by the people that want to be involved with it as opposed to the museum curators. And I think that's, I think the museums will go more and more that way. Which is ultimately a good thing, isn't it? I think so, yeah. We preserve things Mm -hmm. for people to engage with Mm -hmm. and the stories of these objects need to be told by those that they're relevant to. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So instead it, of a museum curator interpreting what they think an object is, actually the person who used this object or the person who came from the culture that made this object, it, surely it makes more sense for them to interpret it than for mm. someone who mm. for someone who works with yeah. it. So I guess the role again that we talked about at the beginning is almost one of enabling people like empowering people to tell their own stories really that's exactly it for me and something that's come up all the way through us talking is that I was thinking about this is about staff storytelling but actually the way you've talked it's really cool I was thinking actually it's about staff story like retelling (laughs) you know like you've 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 spoken about your own you like your own experiences but it's all about how you've enabled other people to tell stories which is that's what I see my role as that's absolutely what I see my role as um I've done a lot of work with the Museum Collective over the last few years, which is our group of young people from 14 to 25. And a lot of the projects that we do with them are about getting them to take ownership of the museum and to work, you know, to programme events, to programme displays that completely come from from them. And 
we are there to enable that to happen as facilitators rather than saying this is how it needs to be done. And have you been surprised or kind of intrigued by what some of the outputs have been? What have they been like? Um, They've been really interesting. So we did a project with them on... So we, we did an Artist Room Gilbert and George exhibition a couple of years ago, which is obviously completely and utterly different to something like War Stories. And the art itself is not something I am personally interested in or feel a connection to in Mm. any way but working with the young people and seeing seeing them engage with it was so interesting and it was inspiring actually seeing how they interpreted it and we we basically we encouraged them to program a series of events one girl Alif decided to she wanted to do a creative residency based on the exhibition she made a community quilt she asked visitors to sew their own square um, over a series of workshops and then she turned them all into a giant quilt the squares were all inspired by the exhibition Um, so it's a really weird it's a really interesting juxtaposition because quilt making is quite a traditional female kind of thing Mm -hmm. and yet the exhibition of Gilbert and George is incredibly male orientated very different way of approaching things but the two came together oh, um, which was really interesting and just it, she took she had a take on it that you know we would never have expected yeah it sounds like, like she appropriated it yeah which I really like she totally appropriated it and actually she made the exhibition accessible to to people in a way that even the artists didn't do I think she brought it to the table and and got people to look at it and come up with their own symbol that you know represented the exhibition for them and she made it into a giant quilt and she got people to engage with it in a way that yeah we possibly didn't manage to do in the exhibition (laughs) itself um well I guess that just shows like yet again the importance of bring yeah bringing different types of people exactly yeah in yeah inside and letting them have free reign for a bit yeah totally and yeah it gives a different different way of seeing things yeah um, yeah great stuff so thank okay. you so much it's all right i think it's been really good and i think the stuff that's come up about personal connections yeah it's like being the key thing great yeah, thank you cool huge thanks to jody for taking part in this episode I love how not only do we gain a much deeper understanding of how RPM has celebrated and commemorated its war stories, but we hear how committed Jodie is to using her position in the museum to help audiences uncover their own personal stories for themselves. This more emotionally connected, person-centred and context-based approach to visitor experience in museums feels like a very thoughtful and boundary-breaking direction of travel. Come with me next time on Voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums, where I'll be speaking to the ghost experts of Preston Manor, RPM's Edwardian Manor House, reputed as being one of the most haunted buildings in Britain. See you there. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, hit like and subscribe, and please leave us a very nice five-star review. Find out more about the Royal Pavilion Museums at brightonmuseums.org.uk and more about this project at onebyone.uk. On Twitter, I'm Soph underscore Frosty, and RPM is Brighton Museums. I really hope you can join me next time. Till soon, goodbye. The voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums are supported by the One by One Research Project, the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, the Keep, Arts Council England, 
and produced by Lo-Fi Arts. <laughs>